Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from a special guest speaker. Well, good morning. We are journeying this month through the book of Philippians. If you were here a few weeks ago, um, I had the pleasure of kicking off uh, this glorious book by journeying through Philippians 1. If you were here last week, Neil journeyed uh, with us through Philippians chapter 2. So um, if you haven't caught the pattern here, we have four chapters in Philippians and we have four different speakers. So it's just great to be able to see how the word of God um, comes through by the Holy Spirit, but also through the experience and personality of different ministers. Um, This morning, we have Bruce Anderson here to lead us through Philippians 3. Amen. Um, and real quickly, I know a lot of you, a lot of you uh, do know Bruce, but if you don't, here's uh, just, a, just a quick bio on Bruce. Bruce is the founder and director of the EPC World Outreaches I-10, which is the um, International Theological Education Network. Um, he is a president uh, for the institution, for the institute, I'm sorry, the Institute for Reformation, which helps to bring the gospel uh, to places in Eastern Europe for cultural transformation, a beautiful work there. Uh, Bruce is a former KPC pastor. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, Bruce, but in 2000, when I came here to Regent, someone told me about this strange church called KPC. I thought I'd go check this place out. I heard they're Reformed and Charismatic. How can that be? So anyhow, I came, and Bruce was a pastor on, on uh, duty that day, and I came and spoke with him for about a half an hour, and I went home. I was like, Tina, I found our church. So, uh, so th- yeah, you remember that? Red, red letter day for you, brother, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, so anyhow, if you don't know uh, Bruce's family, his uh, beautiful wife, Ellie, he's got three sons, David, uh, Daniel, and Samuel. Uh, what I love about Bruce, he's a, he's a scholar and a minister. He has a huge heart for the church and for the mission field. So uh, would you welcome and thank uh, Dr. Bruce Anderson. Thanks, brother. I, I remember that well. I remember that day. I was excited that day when uh, Mark came in. We were all were. We, we had the word spread around and... Uh, we're very excited that he was in town. Um, it's a great, great blessing to be with you. Thank you so much, KPC, for your love, your prayers, your very generous support to me and my family. These 29 years that we've been in relationship to the church here. And uh, I think that's why uh, Gary gave me a foot-long Tootsie Roll. I'm super excited about this. He, gives, he knows I like them, so he gives me the little ones, but when I came in today, I got a foot-long Tootsie Roll. That's, so I, how many people have been here 29 or more years? Look at that. That's a pretty good number. I was going to give out free Tootsie Rolls of that size, and I no longer am. <laughs> but, and, and, and don't look to Gary. He, he's, he didn't have responsibility either, but... Um, uh, we're, and we're praying for you uh, always. Um, and I say, Lord, bless KPC at this time, uh, exciting time. Dr. Benjamin and Cece, are, are, I don't know where they are. They're going to be up here a little later. I see them back here. Uh, wonderful welcome to this church. And uh, we, we just pray with excitement and blessing of God's love and to just touch and fill your life here in this church. And we thank God for you. And... Um, our past year as a family has been eventful, uh, exhausting at times, I've got to be honest, uh, not only with ministry load, but uh, we've been caring for Ellie's mother, Dorothy, um, and uh, Dorothy passed away this uh, past uh, September 11th. Uh, we have kids in college and career transitions. We have kids 
uh, and grandkids with illness and some surgeries over the past year, uh, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and it's been a fruitful year too. Um, first of all, we always enjoy the fruit of uh, these three grandkids, our three, Olivia, Elliot, and then that little one there is the newest one, Peter David Anderson out in Minot, North Dakota. And as you can see, he's already devouring the word. And it's not only the word. I mean, he's got it right. He even has the, uh, the ESV version and a Reformation study Bible. I mean, it just, this little guy is after my own heart for sure. We thank the Lord for our growing ministry. Um, we're just really, really blessed. I have a highly qualified uh, group of people around me in I-10, the uh, theological education leadership ministry that we have overseas as an EPC denomination. And with this team, we're helping bring up seminaries that are right there in re generally remote and difficult places, reaching unreached people groups, especially Muslims, um, I regularly get reports of um, Muslims and uh, Buddhists and others who have come to Christ and are now believers. So we praise the Lord for that. The, uh, thanks. And I also lead the Institute for Reformation, as was mentioned. Uh, we're very active there, uh, working with Christian leaders uh, for national influence in Belarus and Ukraine and elsewhere. This church uh, helped I certainly launch and support and, and make this ministry. Uh, no, no question these many years. And Scott, who is leading worship here, Dave and others are instrumental in this work with me. Um, we just praise God for that. Uh, the New Reformation Movement and East European Leadership Forum is really bringing thousands, tens of thousands of Europeans the gospel, even in these recent years, especially those in leadership uh, spheres. And um, the Lord's just doing wonderful things. I uh, have my email address up here because I'd love to hear from any of you. <clears throat> and it's been a while since I've given it, put it up here. And so if you want to take that, send me a note or get our letter, uh, please do so. And it's not going to be up here long. So if, it, um, uh, if you'd like, I have cards. My cards have been left at the information center and a little family photo too if you like that you can just pick that up on the, the way out so uh, don't worry if you can't grab that email address right there I want to thank uh, Mark and Neil for your good words in Philippians 1 and 2 which I watched online and was blessed by um, also want to thank you guys and, and uh, also Benjamin back there <clears throat> for pastoring a church I love uh, it's a hard it's hard to be a pastor I, I believe I can tell you it's hard, especially this group. No, 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 no didn't. Nothing like that. But I've only pastored in two churches, and just so you know, you're in the top two <laughs> for sure. Um, I love this church, and it's hard to be a pastor. So I just my heart goes to pastors. I love these guys, and I really appreciate everything that you do for us. Um, they've given us context and background, so I don't need to, to repeat any of the things they did. Um, today's uh, text is Philippians 3. I began preparing my thoughts for this message 
from a month ago when it was assigned to me by these, these two guys. And uh, I saw how it related so well, actually, to my personal life and to, to the, the theological education ministry that we have, as well as the church today. And I'm going to read some portions from Philippians 3, and we'll walk through the, the chapter with some brief expository comments, and then as, as you follow with me there, after that I'll explain in more depth about the passage and uh, share some ministry story illustrations at the end, okay? So, uh, Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Come, Holy Spirit, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul is using the word finally because at this point in Philippians, he's closing after several things are being emphasized in the previous chapters, having very much to do with the gospel, and the word gospel occurs very frequently in the passage. First, Paul has emphasized in Philippians the advance of the gospel through suffering. Paul, uh, for Paul, that includes even being in prison where he was writing this epistle. Paul's not just engaging in some kind of academic theological debate in this chapter 3, as we'll see he has been arrested and imprisoned for the gospel ideas and his advocacy of those ideas. A uh, second thing, as we open here in chapter 3, is looking at Philippians 1 and 2, we remember that Paul emphasized living in a manner worthy of the gospel, especially in unity and humility. Third, Paul contrasts this, as he does here in this chapter, with the opponents of the gospel, the Judaizers and the Libertines. And fourth, the, the Christian lives in the gospel and does not live a life of self-righteousness or self-satisfaction, which he also does right here in chapter 3. Rather, the Christian lives by Christ, in Christ, for Christ. And overall, Paul emphasized this is not simply a, a duty, but a rich joy to live even sacrificially for Christ in the gospel. Some form of the word joy occurs 16 times in this book. Again, a summary of this gospel theme is in Philippians 1 and 2, advancing the gospel in a manner worthy, uh, the way that we live. And then here in chapter 3, he, he takes this gospel theme up with the opponents of the gospel, the gospel itself, and the joy that there is in sacrifice for the gospel. In verse 2, we're introduced to these opponents of the gospel. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now Paul speaks here of what is called Judaizers, which are those who impose not only the biblical moral law that is universal for all people, all time, all places, but also the ceremonial law and the, even some Jewish customs that are being put on Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples, as they come into the church. 
And we see this in Galatians 2.14, you can see it very explicitly, and elsewhere in the New Testament. They're trying to push Christians away from the gospel and from justification by faith towards seeing their righteousness and justification before God as being based on the law somehow, including the ceremonial law being done, uh, that has been done away with here in the New Testament church. And even probably pressing some kind of man-made interpretations of the law and some Jewish traditions upon them, um, we don't even realize sometimes in the New Testament era. For example, in Colossae, there was Jewish mysticism and some very crazy ideas there in the spirituality, even among the Jewish people uh, in that, that church context. So these were the, these are the, the Judaizers who focused only on the circumcision of the flesh, mutilators of the flesh, from the Old Covenant, and refuse the Jesus-era sufficiency of circumcision of the heart in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. He superseded it, did not annul it, but the ceremonial law and parts of that covenant no longer are applicable because they've been fulfilled in Christ. So we still keep the moral law, but this ceremonial law and any ethnic or Jewish custom around it is not binding on these Gentile believers. And yet they push to pull them away from the very core of the gospel into this. And that's why you see this, this language of Paul. He goes on in uh, several more verses to say that he has done all of these Jewish things even more successfully than nearly any of them that are doing this speaking that he calls dogs. He says, however, for his or Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, including religious achievements and recognition, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Wow. Paul reminds us of something that is always important to ponder. We are saved by grace through faith. I loved hearing this straight from Scripture, and it was straight from my good Lutheran church I grew up in as a boy. You are saved by grace through faith. It is not an act of your own doing. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 through 19 says. What wonderful news. They were reminding us, you know, that the news out there is so bad. We have wonderful news. We are God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. As Paul says in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. You ask, how am I going to follow Jesus with my whole heart? It is God who works in you. You ask, how will I break this recurring sin? It is God who works in you. You ask, how will I have the power to humble myself and say I'm sorry? It is God who works in you. You ask, how will I have the courage to share about God with my coworker? It is God who works in you. And in me, in us. If you ask him, he will do it. He will. And Paul adds to this that 
Yes, he has not fully arrived into perfect likeness of Christ, but he is pressing toward it by that power of God's Spirit to make him holy. The Bible says you will stand. Why? Because he is able to make you stand. Even in the wickedest hour, in the deepest temptation, the biggest burden, the greatest heartache, he will make you stand. That's why and that's how you will stand. Paul was saying all these things. And he explains some of the how he and, and the Philippians might keep growing in their likeness of Christ as the Spirit works in them in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul calls for the Philippians to think as part of this. So you've got this power, the Spirit, you've got this grace from God, you have an experience, a relationship that I might know Christ and His resurrection stuff. You have all of this operating. And you know what else should be operating? Your mind and my mind. And so he says to think. And we'll look more at this in a moment, for for now, notice his next step after the call to think is to give them the call to walk like Christ, imitating the way Christ can be seen in the walk of Paul. And in the book, he also talks about the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus who risked their lives for you all, for the gospel, he says. And for the Philippians to not walk like their opponents. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us for, and that's Christ working in them, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These enemies, as he calls them, appear to be earthly-focused, materialist, and hedonists. While these enemies' lives are earthbound, Paul encourages the Philippians that their lives are based in heaven and heaven's coming to earth. Christ's redemption is bringing the consummation of all things in the final day, something of which, unfortunately, these earthbound people are very unaware at that point. He goes on but, and closes with this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And Paul encourages them with these last words of the chapter that Christ is transforming not only their own relationship, not only that willing and working within them, that, that knowing, knowing Christ and uh, counting everything a loss to know him and his resurrection and his sufferings. Not only is the transformation there and that behavior, that lifestyle, but in the whole universe, bringing every square inch of this world, its peoples, its cultures, its societies, its powers and governments, indeed everything under his transforming power. Hallelujah. It's assured. 
This is assured. This is a part of the gospel. That's why we call him the Lord. Hallelujah for that. A lot of what Paul uh, is talking about in Philippians 3 has to do with standing firm in the mature thinking of the gospel. Uh, so you could, we could frame, and I did this a little bit, uh, chapter 3, a little bit like this. You have three types of people curiously described by these terms. I thought about sort of some provocative sermon title, you know, Dogs, Dung, and Destruction. <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm, <clears throat> yeah, I must just be getting too old for this, you know. People say, oh, come on. And it's, <laughs> so I think it said just Philippians 3 in there, and that's probably a lot better. But, I don't know, it's kind of fun for a while to think about. <clears throat> the Judaizers are legalists in that they see salvation coming by law-keeping, as we mentioned. They must rely on their performance. This is sad, too. This is very sad. This is where we're all at when we're not in the liberty of Christ. You know, just having to rely on our own performance. And my heart's broken for somebody who wants to take their own life. Why they, what's behind that? Sometimes that's because they're just trying to do their best and they realize they're never getting it done. And, and, you know, we realize we're not either, but we realize that the satisfaction that God is looking for in us is made already complete in Christ. And so we can accept ourselves and we don't have to go down that path. So this is real stuff. They must rely on their own performance of the law's requirements for salvations. Christians are liberated that Jesus fulfilled the law for them, paid the price for their lawlessness, and now gives them law-keeping power progressively throughout their lives to its completion, the completing of that work inside of us, in heaven. For the Christians, they are saved by grace through faith and unto good works, not by good works. And Christians are not under the law in that the requirements of law-keeping have already been met for them by Christ. However, please understand, Christian. Hear this, please. This does not mean Christians are free from having to obey the moral law of God. It is still binding. In fact, it's still binding whether people acknowledge it or not. It's binding on all people, all places, all time. The Ten Commandments, they're, they're there upon all of creation. We can say they don't exist, but you're still bound by the law. Just like when you guys say, well, I didn't think that uh, speed sign existed, and they pull you over. It still counts. Yeah, that's right, Kathy. It still counts. So our obedience to it does not save us, but we are still required to keep it and will be accountable to God even in heaven and in the final day. Now, it'll all be swallowed up in God's mercy and grace, but we'll, there's something there that we give account for. What's good for us is that the Holy Spirit enables us, as we said, God works in us to obey the moral law as we allow him. Thank the Lord for that. Now, that the legalists are called dogs in this New Testament world context means they are low and disgusting. Dogs weren't these cute little pets, you know, in the, same, in the New Testament world in the same way that they are uh, today, at least for some people. Um, Along these lines, for example, Epicurus uh, was denounced by Timon, a vulgar satirist, as the lowest dog among the physicists. The dog being, to the Greeks, the symbol of shamelessness. Because 
dogs did in public, what you should only do in private. So there's this the shamelessness to it. Uh, Lactantius, a, a famed uh, early Christian author, advisor to Emperor Constantine in, in the third and fourth centuries, used the term dog similarly of the Epicureans. And you see this, you see this a lot in that literature. And in my period that I research in the, in the early modern period of the 16th century, you still see him talking about dogs. And there, there's this whole tradition that even stems for centuries out of this. And in, in fact, as I travel in developing countries today, and I, I, you know, there are lots of dogs everywhere. These are, these are just kind of wild dogs running in the streets. They all kind of look the same in about every country. And you know, these dogs get beat, they get shooed, they're hated, they're just treated like garbage. And um, you know, people have a very different attitude. Okay, so just remember in this New Testament world where uh, he's using this word and has all kinds of meaning. You see, to keep circumcising the physical flesh of males, <clears throat> which was uh, only the shadow of things to come, and doing it as if it is the necessity for salvation, is lower than the fullness of the new and transforming circumcision of the heart. And so Paul wants to clamp down on this with some pretty firm language. In the ESV, the word rubbish uh, is what Paul calls this combined total of religious attainments, reputation, you know, a, a performance, and really is everything in life. Um, I'm using in this slide here the provocative, uh, as I mentioned, you know, KJV language, dung, uh, to get your attention and show you a little bit of what Paul said. It may not be the best translation, but it worked. It's a D, too, you notice. <laughs> D, D, D. Paul specifically combats rivalry and envy. It's very interesting in Philippians 1 and 2, as these guys have drawn some attention to. The Judaizers are keeping score, and they're trying harder and harder to gain, to gain some points. Paul is saying that his goal is to lose. To him, his scores, and he has more than even his opponents, count for nothing more than garbage. Why? Because he wants to stay in what he has gained and do nothing to interfere with that. His righteousness, confidence, love, security, salvation, peace are in Christ alone. If he counts any or all of his good deeds, not to mention talents, lineage, nationality, educational attainment, etc., as if he wants to count any of that as anything before God, he risks and betrays that relationship with God. Paul knows he not only needs and should doctrinally support this, but he wants to be in Christ alone. I love that about this passage. What is his motivation? He's saying, I, I don't value this. I value it so little. It's rubbish to me. It's a statement of value. What I love and prize is to be in Christ Jesus, where it doesn't matter if I perform high or low. I'm never going to let it get me. Sometimes high gets you. Oh, I'm high and mighty now because I did so well. Oh, now I'm so low. I'm groveling and I'm suicidal. Okay, see? You don't want to be anywhere there. And it's not just because you have to, because he's the Lord and you must. It's also because you want to. I want Jesus. I want to be in that place, just relying, leaning, and living inside Christ and the love relationship I have with him. I don't want anything to get in the way. It's beautiful. The libertines are those who don't see themselves bound by the rules of God. 
And those are the ones that, you know, he's talking about here at the, at the back part of this passage, these libertines with their destruction, the hedonists. Uh, all of these opponents, you know, the libertines here could be some, you know, mix of the Judaizers, the same ones that are referred to as dogs in the verse 2 in the earlier part of the chapter. Uh, we're not totally sure. They could be, though, um, coming from this Greek and Roman hedonist tradition as well. And you see all of this in, 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 the, in the New Testament. And for example, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22-24, For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Again, see, you see these different groups. And he says, but we, the true followers of Jesus, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, we're not sure exactly, but there's definitely some form of hedonism that seems to be in, uh, in this last part of the chapter with these libertines, with the belly god, and, and all of that. Uh, a hedonist is an advocate, according to Wikipedia, of the doctrine that the spirit exists as distinct from matter or that spirit is the only reality. Hedonism was connected to uh, the, Europe, the, the Epicureans, as I mentioned in particular, this Greek philosopher Epicurus, who argued that the pleasure was the chief goal in life. The chief goal in life is pleasure. Now notice especially how opposite Epicurean is, Epicureanism is to Christian faith as set forth by Paul. To the Epicurean, to say the chief end of man is pleasure does not necessarily mean total and unrestrained decadence and indulgence like we often think of, you know, the Epicurean as a person just parties all the time. That's not actually exactly how Epicurus was putting it. But particularly, listen to this, particularly what he was saying was to minimize any suffering or sacrifice one might have to endure. Think of that. Very different from the gospel that Paul's preaching, who who is attempting to become more and more like Christ, like him in his death, willing to sacrifice, willing to give to other people, willing to pour out his life like a drink offering, like Paul said in another place in Scripture. Right? And here in Philippians, he's embracing all of that with rejoicing. He actually rejoices, he says, in the opportunity that he has to be in prison because he thinks it's going to help the gospel advance and give God glory. To the Epicurean, there's no immortality or afterlife and so no fear of punishment. Certainly no working out your salvation with fear and trembling as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. To the Epicurean, death means the absolute end. This will sound familiar to us. In our day, a far cry from the citizenship in heaven and focus on the great transformation that will be finalized at that end day. Epicurus says, Death is, not, is nothing to us, for that which is dissolved is without sensation, and that which lacks sensation is nothing to us. So from this doctrine, arose from the Epicurean epitaph that became very popular. It's in Latin. Non fui fui, non sum, non curo. I was not. I was. I am not. I do not care. 
which is inscribed on the gravestones of his many followers and seen, uh, seen on many of the ancient gravestones of the Roman Empire and a quotation often used today at many humanist funerals. Wow, still relevant. So we see more of what Paul is saying about these three types of people. Legalists have confidence in the flesh, righteousness through the flesh. The liberated, the Christians, have confidence in being found. And I just love what Paul says there. He says, his, his whole confidence, his whole reality just is about, I am found in Christ. Righteousness through faith. And the libertines at the end of the chapter have confidence in food. It's another F, but it goes along with their God is the belly, the belly God. Pleasure. Righteousness through earthly things. So we can conclude so far then that Paul is exhorting the Philippians and us to watch out for the false teachers, the false philosophies, the false theologies that oppose and hinder the gospel. They hinder that which is within us personally and they hinder in the church and its advancement of the gospel. So he's, he's in this chapter, he's really addressing this. So we ponder what are the false theologies you and I and the church face today? Especially just those things that come bearing out upon us. We often are so much around and surrounded by that we don't even realize it. Ponder how these are taking us off track from the gospel, hindering our mission in Hampton Roads in the world. Now what happens is we start to do this and we go, well, yeah, but this is 2019. You know, this is back with these barbarians back here. Right? That's the way we think about this ancient world, you know. Already I've shown you some realities of that ancient world that are very current. But we, we think, well, I don't know, is this stuff really touching our lives? And I'll give a few examples in a moment. But before we do that, I, I want to just also see the personal dimension here and just let the Lord just minister to us all. Ponder how much confidence you and I can receive in being found in Christ and that and that. We're so secure in the gospel. We would never want to give that up, would we? To do so would be giving in to the dogs, giving in to moral sanity. This is, this is a moment where we just reflect on our, our love for the Lord and our utter salvation in him. There's just nothing keeping us from him. There's nothing there. That, and and we, we don't want anything to come stealing that away uh, from us on a personal level. No lie. May the power of God break the lies that would rest upon us. Spirit of... Uh, uh, a condemnation, suicide, a spirit of defeat, people, people just feeling they're overtaken by their circumstance. They, they, cannot, they cannot move any further. Uh, the, the impurities, the things we struggle with, may they be broken today in Jesus' name by this power working in us that nothing separates us, no false idea of the mind whether it's formal or informal theology, no false idea, no, no construct in our minds coming against this great and true gospel that you and I are 100% set free from the power of sin and not slave to it and liberated by God's power into a growing sanctification that's a process that God understands and is taking us through to the final day. We live in grace, sanctification, power, freedom, peace. May the peace of God guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus.
today. I say peace to your mind in Jesus' name. Every thought captive. Theology is warfare. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for that. Now, another point here, and then I'm going to uh, some comments and some illustrations and wrapping. Pursuing the process of how to live and advance the gospel from mature theology to mature practice is something that we see Paul doing that I've already talked about. So he, he, he's not just talking about thinking the thoughts, but walking the walk and how that all plays out. And one way to look at that is to see this process involving incorrect thinking, this, these things that come in from outside and inside our own hearts and minds as we battle with the devil and deal with ideas and deal with bad theologies and philosophies of our time, that we confront with what he calls mature thinking. And then that thinking is not just some intellectual exercise or some psychology thing. It is a part of a lifestyle that's being walked out in a personal way and, and as the church doing the missions, mission of the Lord. There's a clear link there. You know, he says in verse 19, their, their minds set on earthly things, but then he also refers to opponents as the evildoers. He didn't say the evil thinkers. They're the evildoers because of the evil thinkers. What they think manifests in the way uh, that they live. And so that's why this exercise is very important. That's why every Sunday we come here and we look in the holy book and let it change our minds and our hearts. Uh, so we understand, and it's important to understand that this carries on all the way to the more formal theological exercise of the church. And I say this because things like this study in apologetics, things like the ministry that we do that, that, that together in our partnership with I-10 and IFR, uh, these are things where we're definitely dealing in the realm of more formal even uh, theology and thought. And they're important. And you could say, yeah, but you just flow with the Spirit. Well, you know, you, you flow with the Spirit, I hope, and you walk out in Spirit-guided reason. And if you don't think this true, then look at Paul. Studied theology, it says in verse 5, as a Hebrew of Hebrews. That meant he knew the Hebrew language when many Jews at the day didn't. He could move in those scriptures. He had a very high level of learning, studying under the feet of a famous scholar, Gamaliel, he was humanly prepared to walk as an instrument of divine inspiration and write so many books of the Bible. And he took along with him Apollos, powerful scholar, Acts 18 says, from Alexandria, which is the Harvard Oxford of the day. And he, he moved around refuting the Jews in public, in the combat of ideas, in the book, books in the scripture, and he was training and laying the foundations and preparing the pastors in combination with Paul and Paul's teaching as well. In Acts 15, we read about a very thought-out theological formulation on how theologically the Gentiles should be brought into the church. Philippians 2, as, as Neil was bringing us last week, 
has a theologically formulated hymn of the early church. There's some heavy thinking and reflection. Already in the early church, you have the exercise at the various levels. Now, we don't want everybody, God doesn't want everybody to be, you know, an academic or a theologian. He has assignments for all of us. I'm just saying, we need to understand that the full realm of, of our private thinking, uh, just personal devotional reading the Bible, all the way to these full-blown people like the Apostle Paul and Apollos, and modern theologians, is an important part of all that we're talking about. Watching our doctrine and how our practice flows out of that doctrine. I, when it comes to, you know, how are we doing in, in, as a church in America, I, I, have, I have points where I'm very disturbed and very heartbroken recently. And uh, as a way of illustration and just cultivating, I think, I hope, a little bit of the fear of the God because it does it for me. I walk around and I say, Lord, this could be happening to me. I must be careful. But the church today seems troubled with flirtations and experiments and sadly even an accommodation to the spirit of the age in, in a number of ways. Uh, you know, we're influenced by a lot of things. Skepticism, pluralism, secularism, postmodernism, feminism, relativism, progressivism, a lot of isms. Sometimes it's for the good. As we listen and learn and we engage, and we kind of say, oh, the Lord's helping critique ourselves. Oftentimes, too many times, it's, it's not, though. It's, it's some form of accommodation and abandonment uh, and surrender to, of the gospel. I'm particularly concerned about something I see happening right now, um, particularly with millennials, but this isn't a generational bashing thing from the old guy because I see it in the wider culture. Um, but that's a rising challenge to religious certainty. Now, I know that my generation and old previous ones were probably wrong at times in our certitude about things and maybe pounding things down and shoving things down people's throats, but this is a, a rising challenge to religious certainty and active acceptance, almost celebration of doubt, as if full-blown doubt is like the new virtue, the new coolest thing to have as a Christian disciple. Something to be proud of. Now, we all struggle with doubt, and we should be honest and share those things honestly, but, but I mean, it's not something we're, we should be going after that I understand from the gospel where we're saved by grace through faith, not doubt. It's a reaction in some ways against traditional theological conservatism and some of the, the, the hard edge, I understand. I, I get that. In some cases, an abandonment, though, where some people are literally just abandoning evangelical identity, label, even evangelical doctrine, and just going off. Now, I'm not making this up, okay? That, that wouldn't be fair. Just a few examples, and I give them all, and I don't like doing these things in one sense, but they're public examples, therefore it's appropriate to be public. But one of them is Rachel Held Evans, a popular Christian writer who journeyed into increasing doubt, wrote popular books on it, and disavowed her evangelicalism uh, with a lot of real heavy doubt uh, in her Christianity in general. And, and unfortunately, she sadly died. She's only in her 30s and recently died. It's a, it's a sad story. There are many others. Josh Harris, 30-something conservative pastor and author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, in August announced his divorce abruptly online, recanted his, his former teachings, apologized to the LGBTQ plus uh, people for his harmful views, marched in the Vancouver Pride Parade, 
and said he had undergone, quote, from him, a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus, end quote, and a, quote, falling away, and that, quote, by all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Or another 30-something, Audrey Assad. I have loved her music. It's been very influential for me. Well-known Christian singer who left evangelicalism years ago for Catholicism, and I still loved her music, says that in the past few years, she reached a point where she was not a believer and would vow, and would now say, in her words, I think, or, I, I, I think I believe. So she's reached a point where she wasn't even sure that she did believe, now she just says, I, I think I believe. And I saw on her Twitter page uh, just yesterday, she praised Pride Month with a display of the rainbow icons, just divorced her husband in July. A recent interview with her is titled, Interview with Audrey Assad, Deconverting from Certainty. To add to this tragedy, the interview is produced and hosted by Dr. Peter Enns, a former Westminster Seminary professor, one of the conservative seminaries, who was forced to leave his seminary in 2005 because of his controversial theology, is now happy to celebrate such developments as these and seems to be acting as a supporting theologian. I, 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 I do not even get this. Folks, the spirit of the world is ready to eat you and me alive. And it will attack our thinking, our theology, as a part of that process. 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. And you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith, good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Command and teach these things until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Watch your life and doctrine closely for all of us. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, these are sober words. They're heavy words. And we've got to understand the context of Philippians, where it involves unity and humility. So it's really wrong to, to be right or think you're right and to be, to be right in the wrong way. So when we're correcting and shaping, adjusting, and helping each other get to these these better points of our understanding and making our mistakes, let's remember that humility and unity uh, and love in the process. As I close, I close with, as Paul closed Philippians 3, with praise to our Savior Jesus Christ, who is saving us and the world, transforming it into something glorious, bringing all things into subjection to him who is good and who is all in all. Uh, to him I say praise and amen. Thank you. God bless you. I love you, church. And I pray. Lord, uh, I just thank you so much for the good words that we have from your inspired Philippians 3. May joy and rejoicing come to hearts. May confidence in right standing with Christ alone. May hearts and minds be guarded with peace. Protect your word. Protect and preserve our faith the faith in the churches, and encourage us every day that wherever it is in the world, you are always working and doing a mighty transformation. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.